You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 162. I'm Victor Marks, and joining me is Mike Worthley. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm amazing. Now, I'm going to get right to the point here. We've been talking about a bunch of things as we lead up to preparing to record this, and one of the things we were talking about is the the Apple iOS betas. Now, they've rolled out High Sierra betas and iOS and tvOS betas and also watchOS betas. And, you know, this is this is something that I know I'm using a lot of enthusiasm for in my voice as I speak, but it's it's one of those progressions towards what we're going to get next. And, and while there aren't any great release notes associated with these kinds of things, we see little changes taking place, don't we? Yeah, we're about halfway through the beta cycle. One of the audio vendors said that uh, iOS 11.3 was coming th- last week, but that was nonsense from the get-go. We're on beta 4 right now of the entire run of operating systems. We probably, I'm guessing we have three more just based on history. It could go up to five. It depends on exactly what Apple wants to do. But as a reminder, Apple pre-released, pre-announced, excuse me, pre-announced iOS 11.3 in a press release the same day the first beta came out. And they said it would come in the spring. So at the very earliest, we're looking at the 20th of this month. Right. And the very latest is is nominally what, the end of May-ish? The end of May or so. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have my calendar open right in front of me on seasonal transition days. But yeah, I mean, that's about what we're looking at. And unfortunately, I would like to say that we'd see it close to the 20th, but given how Apple does with their seasonality predictions, I'm guessing April. I'm guessing well, mid-April. Th- my, my feeling is that, like with product releases, with hardware releases, for example, they used to always say the end of, or, you know, in September, and it would be the last day of September. And they'd or, ship like two of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're right down to the wire on that kind of thing. And of course, they have a better handle on what they're doing these days in terms of operations and supply and all of that, I would like to say. Although, of course, there are things crop up like HomePod and other products that get mm-hmm. delivered late. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of these things where if they say a date or if they say a time frame, presume that it's going to be at the very end of that time frame. Yeah, and that's safe. It's I'm not really sure why everyone gets worked up about Apple missing shipping dates or anything like that. It, it's I would rather have it in the condition we get it than, than even earlier in the cycle when it's really not ready as opposed to mostly being ready. Or, or as opposed to shipping and not being ready after right, it's shipped. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, listeners will know what I'm referring to there. The other thing that's interesting about these betas is that sometimes you get to see progressions of, of things taking place in them that are changes that, that could be things that actually get released. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the transition from iBooks to books yeah, is that's, something that we've seen through this beta cycle. Yeah, that's been a back and forth. The, they've First, they went from iBooks to books with some relatively minor changes to the app, and now they're back to iBooks, but kept the relatively minor changes to the app. Now, uh, Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg about a month ago said that Apple was working on a mass renovation of the Apple Bookstore and books on the Mac and all these other things. None of that has really come to pass yet. Will it come to pass with this version? Don't know. Will it come with the next major revisions, the the iOS 12 and 10.14 Mac OS or, or who knows? Or maybe it won't even come to fruition. I mean, that the store has laid fallow for a while. It's functional, mind you, but it's not the necessarily the best store, the best reading experience in software. 
It's a good reading experience, but it's it wasn't a, a runaway hit in terms mm-hmm. of popularity that that one might have hoped. Well, yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad one. It's just not necessarily the best. It really depends on your point of view on that one. I, I feel like one of the things that really didn't work well here was that they – so Apple, when they were working on iBooks initially, was a part of the EPUB working group. Mm-hmm. And, and they – participated in that working group and then after the words came and created their own standard iBooks out of that. And and of course people who were big in EPUB at that time were offended that that Apple did this rather than contributing back to the EPUB standard. The result is that when you publish an ebook, you have to write it, you have to arrange it and lay it out, and then you have to use iBooks author to format it for iBooks and take advantage of the special features that iBooks can do. And if you're going to sell as well in, in you know, Amazon's Kindle format, you've got to go ahead and be able to publish to their tools. If you want to do any of the other stores that are out there, then you have to do EPUB. And so it's one of those problems where, you know, none of the standards are good enough. We'll fix it all by creating one better standard. And now you've got 15 more standards. We actually examined Vellum, which is a subscription software that allows you to publish to all of the different stores with one, well, one text, I guess, for lack of a better term. I've, I haven't played that much. One manuscript. Thank you. That's a better word. I've, I haven't played that much with iBooks publisher, but I've played with it enough to know that it's kind of a mess. iBooks author is, is a tool that I liked a lot, but it it seems like it never got past its first release, really. You know, I was, I was trying to use it to make, uh, ebooks that I could distribute for product catalogs Mm -hmm. back when I was managing a a suite of products. Mm -hmm. And, it was a great tool, but it, it was a little bit clunky. It, it felt like arranging titles and chapter headings and things just wasn't solidly there. And it's never moved beyond that. I, I think that Apple software in many ways is let's appeal to 90% of the market with half of the effort we might need to spend into appealing to all of the market. That last 10% is hard to appeal to. And, and I think that the publisher is an aspect of that. I think GarageBand in many ways is that. I think they're leaving room for other people to fill that gap. I, I just want to say, you know, this this is the old canard that we used to talk about when we were talking about things like Keynote as an mm-hmm. application, right? Keynote was Steve Jobs' own tool. It was the tool that was made for him to do presentations, and therefore it got all the love in the world because he needed it to work right. And people used to say that numbers and pages did not get that same level of attention because he wasn't using them. And I I feel like the same is true for iBooks Author, is that it doesn't have an internal advocate driving it forward in the same way that Keynote does. I don't think that's the case. I I think that Keynote is the way it is. Yes, it was Steve Jobs' product, but I don't think that they lavished extra care on it. I think that it filled Steve's what he needed and not one step farther. And I think that numbers is the same way and pages. I, I think that it fills that particular product need and not one step farther. I, it, there, so there's a subtle difference there, but yeah, yeah. And again, I think that leaves the gaps to be filled by, yeah, you want hardcore number crunching? Here's Excel. Have a nice time with VLOOKUP and HLOOKUP. It's, it's hard to glean sometimes intent out of Cupertino. And I, and I know that, well, for a fact, Keynote was Jobs' tool, but it doesn't do everything that other pub, that other presentation tools do. But frankly, it didn't do it because Steve didn't need it to do it. Mm-hmm. What we do know and what we are able to discern is that there is a progression uh, over time of Apple removing the I prefix from mm-hmm. products. Mm-hmm. You know, iCal became calendar. Uh, iSync 
became, well, nothing. It went away. <laughs> um, it became a feature within iTunes. Um, address book became contacts. But, but, but over time, that, that, that I prefix is going away. And so it would be no big surprise to see iBooks drop the I. They'd be simply Apple Books, right? No, I, I don't think that. I don't, I don't think that is a big marketing push or anything to get rid of it. I just think it's a natural evolution of the product lines. And we're looking forward to whatever else Apple gives us within, you know, the watchOS. And, and uh, watch OS, the, the biggest change, not in this beta, but a couple betas ago was the re-edition of browsing your local music library on your phone. Mm-hmm. And that that's a giant ad. Well, it was a giant takeaway first because Apple removed the ability and now that they're, they're giving it back. So that that's kind of a big deal. Right. Because if you've got the ability to, to route to AirPlay devices from your watch and you've got the ability to browse your local iTunes library from your watch, then it means that you have the ability to control a local iTunes library and send it somewhere interesting like a HomePod. Yeah. It, it's there's There's a lot of converging products right now that it's become apparent that over time that Apple has always had a plan, even if it wasn't necessarily apparent to us here in the trenches mm-hmm. with touch screens and app stores and further expansions upon the app stores and perhaps products that wouldn't have worked well had the app store not been in place first. So, I mean, in, in many ways, it's a chicken or the egg situation. What beget what? It's hard to tell. Would, would the iPhone have done as well if the iPod did not precede it? Would the evolution of the iOS, such as the iPod, iPad and so forth done as well if the app store didn't exist before that. So, and the HomePod just seems to be something that Apple may have been considering for a long time, especially if you look back to the iPod Hi-Fi. I have one of those, you know. Um, I was actually considering getting one and doing a DIY piece on using Siri with it, but time got away from me. So I, I think I'm going to pass on that one for now. I, I bought mine several years ago from uh, from a woman who was reluctant to let it go. She didn't want to sell it. And as, as she'd advertised and I met her, she said, you're not going to take it apart, are you? You can't take it apart. You have to use it to listen to it. You have to enjoy it. There's a lot of people like that. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have been among them at times. I mean, I got better. But <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting phenomenon. I've bought, I bought hardware from people in the past who have been very much the same way in that regard. You know, I, I use this for so long. This is my baby. Are you going to use it? You're not going to, like, take it apart. for No, no, I'm going to use it. Don't don't worry, man. No, I, I did not disassemble that thing. It's still good. I was using it just the other day with some of my revived iPods. Mm-hmm. It still works a treat. Oh, sure. It's just the, the biggest drawback is that 30-pin connector. Well, you say drawback, but uh, it charges FireWire and USB. And it works exceedingly well. It takes the audio straight off that that Wolfson digital audio <laughs> converter. I don't have a problem with that. In that yeah, device. And now, now you're talking to the 30 people that listen to us that still have a 30-pin iPod. Hey, hey, we've got listeners out there with six-pin FireWire ports on iPods. Mm, not that many. I mean, we do have a couple. we got a picture that we'll share I'm with saying. you. Yeah. Yep. And I love those people. And if you have a picture, if you have an old iPod that you still use on time to time and you can put the podcast on it and take a picture of that, I would like to see it. Yeah, that was an interesting migration for me at the time. I love the fact that it had a FireWire 400 connector. It was just so seamless with everything I had. And then they went to the 30-pin connector and I was like, ah, here we go. But it uh, over time, it made more sense. It made no sense and was dis- it was displeasing to me at the time. <laughs> In 2003, it was annoying. I get it. And I, I felt that way too at the time. Um 
but we, we, you know, as I was trying to revive iPods, I ran into, I have three Mac minis here, one with a dead hard drive, one with a dead FireWire port, and one that worked perfectly. And the FireWire port thing, I, I did some poking around and asking old friends that also used Macs from this time period. It turns out that's why Sony always shipped the 4-pin 400 FireWire port, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. iLink port, was because if you had a, a the 6-pin device as uh, Apple shipped, it, it happened frequently enough that plugging something into it would blow the fuses in the port and fry the PHY on the motherboard. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a completely valid reason to go away from that six pin port to begin with. I did not know that. That is good to know. I, well, I talked with uh, several people who said immediately that, yeah, that's what happens. It's good to know. Not particularly relevant today, but it's good no, to no. know. A Mac from, gosh, uh, 11 years ago now. <laughs> Let's see, but, Firewire 400? Well, I'm just thinking about that when that Mac Mini was made. Oh yeah, yeah. That was uh, well. I've got so I've got the the 2007 1.6 dual core, uh, a 1.3 1.83 dual core, and a two gigahertz. Yeah. So so I I don't keep getting accused of being a new hardware elitist. Uh, I do have an original Intel Mini that I've slapped in a dual core in the other room playing music as we speak. Yeah. So well, that's that's what this was was the original Intel Mini. I've got four or five of the G4 Minis around, but. Uh, I haven't felt like a need to dig those out yet. I can't even imagine what you'd use them for now. Well, they could be a home server. Uh, <laughs> in theory, yes. They can I, do I think file that's... sharing. They can do iTunes sharing. Mm. That That's a... Uh, hmm. They could be home servers. Uh, y- yes, in theory, but... In, in, in practice, for some definitions of practice. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm skeptical on that one. Yeah, you can do it. I'm just not sure it's prudent. I agree. But, you know, one of the things that you and I have been talking about as we talk about home servers is the possibility of using a Raspberry Pi running um, Linux as as the home server. And years and years ago, I wrote a story for lowendmac.com, and this was about 2000, uh, about how to use Linux to do Apple file protocol for for file sharing. Mm -hmm. And it it just occurs to me that that all of the open source – NAS media server kind of things for running on a Pi or running on an Intel computer, uh, all do DAAP, which is iTunes sharing. So there's no real reason why I couldn't, instead of using a Mac or having to acquire a Mac, if I didn't have enough lying around, could use uh, a Pi as a media server or a home server. Yeah, we're going to delve into that a little bit more at Apple Insider in the next couple of weeks, actually. Some alternatives. That, the things that we think about, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, stay tuned for those, I guess. Let's talk about Workflow. So Workflow app is an application that Apple acquired. And what was unique about this for me is is that when Apple acquired them, uh, it was unusual. And it was unusual because Apple, when they make acquisitions, they're making acquisitions of hardware or they're making acquisitions of technology. And they're, they're hiring on the people that did those things. It's been a long time since Apple bought an application, right? I, well, I, I don't disagree. I'm, 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 you're just coming to a larger point, and I'm waiting before I throw in my two cents. Yeah, and and so this is the first update uh, to workflow since Apple acquired it. I think. Well, when, no, they acquired the second, second, second. Yep. But it's it's had very uh, very infrequent updates, and and this is show further show of support that they're actually intending to bring it forward and keep it going. That they're supporting their purchase. Yeah, the first update was more about 
stopping support for services that Apple didn't bless anymore. Right. Things that work with competitor, um, direct competitors. Right. So it, I'm, I'm pleased that this one is, is adding some expandability back. And uh, the ex- the extensions to the software are interesting to me because I've kind of thought that what they were going to do with it is they were going to integrate it in the iOS at a deeper level, which they may yet. But I kind of thought that it would happen before now. To be fair, they've had a lot on their plate. True. You know, it's it's one thing to talk about all of the software apocalypses and failures and things like that that they've had in this past year. And another to say, I really wish they'd just done more, right? They could take, pile all these features into the thing. It's like, um, how much are we asking them to actually pull off here? Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the software. I've used it on occasion. I'm still very much an old school user where instead of setting up something that will, uh, like a three-part Apple script or something like that, I will very much just do those three steps on my own. It's just how my brain is wired, I guess. Yeah. So what we use workflow for here at Apple Insider is formerly we used to use Pythonista and we had a Pythonista script that I had borrowed and reworked and, and edited to be able to combine images. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have screenshots from an iPhone app, if you have three screenshots, we would combine those images together so that we would have one wide image that we could then put into an Apple Insider article. Or, or for example, if we have an Apple Watch screenshot of apps, and so I'd have four Apple Watch screenshots and we'd combine those together and then use that within an article. And these are things that Neil and I shared back and forth so that we could easily do these sorts of things for these articles. And when Workflow came out, we abandoned Pythonista and moved all of these kinds of things into Workflow. And so we have from the phone these sorts of easy things where it allows us to pick out images from our our slideshows or screenshots folders. And then it goes ahead and compiles them into that single image and then exports it to Dropbox or to files or wherever else we need it. Yeah, Neil very much is more of an iOS user than I am as far as getting work done. I am first and foremost, my Mac is my prime mover. And unfortunately, iOS devices I use as communication tools or media extenders more than anything else. I really don't. I personally don't really use them as, well, work devices, really work production devices. So this is me. You have a supercomputer in your pocket with more power than it took to launch the moon lander, right? Mm -hmm. And use it as a media extender and texting device. Well, the, the fact that I'll use it to play a match three while I'm waiting for somebody is the irony of that is not lost on me. Okay. I, I do keep trying to find ways to use it as a primary computing interface, and there are these little things that help that along. So what did we get in this workflow update? Well, there's a mask image action, which is brand new. There's support for things, and things is a, a to-do application, a sort of task management application. If you which will. we actually just looked at today. We looked yes, at that on did. Thursday afternoon, or mm-hmm. Thursday morning, excuse me. Uh, it improves the ability to extract text from PDFs using the PDF kit framework that came in iOS 11. And so while this seems like a relatively minor update, it, it, there's a bunch of noteworthy stuff in there. You know, it, it used it's previously supported URL schemes so that you could open the application using a web shortcut on your Springboard desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, you can now do a URL scheme that opens a workflow directly with in the app. So you can create launchers to do specific things. Um, and, and if you've got other apps like Launcher or Launch Center Pro, you can use those as well with this kind of URL scheme. Um, the mask image thing is something people have been asking for for years. 
and it, it seems to work pretty well. You can get rounded rectangle, you can get a custom, customizable corner radius, you mm-hmm. can do ellipse, you can do icon kind of things with it. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah, the and, functionality embedded in it, it's an incredible amount of stuff that's jammed into it. Well, and this is something that we talked about uh, ages ago with the the uh, Stephen Sainovsky parting ways with Apple because Steve was the head of automation for all things Mac. And so when, when he left Apple, there was sort of this outcry over what does automation look like? Yeah, what happens in, now in, right? in Apple's world without Steve? And the, the answer is with workflow, it says that the automation way forward is on iOS and it's using this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I was going to address that a little bit. The, the automation side of it, even though I don't do much of it, I do keep tabs on it. It really hasn't advanced that much since he left. So people say a lot about convergence of the Mac operating systems and that argument typically goes what well, the Mac people say, well, I don't want a conversion with iOS and the iOS people say, eh, okay, whatever. It's good and bad. It, having the two discrete operating systems is interesting from a user perspective in that sometimes if you're predominantly Mac like me, you look over in the iOS side and say, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. I'd like that. I'm not sure how well that goes the other way. Yeah. Well, I've been using Automator on on Mac to do things like this, and I would be happy to have workflow on Mac. I would really like being able to bring these kinds of workflows over. So there's me. But uh, workflow, I'm pretty pleased with it. We've always had a a handle on using it since it came out. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's, especially if you use Things as your to-do app, this can only be a good thing. Yeah, give it a shot. So you mentioned things. Tell me about things. What did, what did you think of it? Because I I started using it in 2008. Things uses the to-do concept. It's, it's not it's a Pomodoro machine. It's getting things done kind of things, it, Yeah, sort of. It, it takes a different approach to the getting things done. It, it, it's a big improvement. It adds a lot of hooks into the ability for other apps to have hooks into things to more easily generate a list. But as with any of these task managers, what you get out of it is exactly what you put into it. If you don't elaborate on your tasks, if you don't put them in any detail, if you don't complete your entire workflow in there, if you, it, it's not necessarily a good tool if you don't give it good data. And that's always been the biggest complaint with any of these apps is people can say, well, it doesn't do this. Well, you're right. It doesn't automatically fill this from this contact list because you didn't tell it to. And that's the biggest thing to take away from this is there are so many different ways and so many different task managers and so many different Pomodoro apps and so many different workflow automation apps that you really have to read accounts of a couple different ones and and see how it works with your hardware and software situation to figure out what's going to best work for you. Yeah. And I've tried numerous of them. And my favorite one was one that's been long gone now. It's called Orchestra. Oh, wow. You remember that one? I do. I loved it. God, it's five years gone now? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the tools that really worked for me are ones that I miss. You know, I, I I regret that that one got. So what happened there was they got absorbed into Dropbox, mm-hmm. and and of course that product got killed, and that was terrible. I loved that one. So I mean, uh, to be honest, my my life is organizational chaos. So while I what I have it just for me personally is I have the big picture items and calendar. Because between work, where something pops up and I have to jump right on it, and between the various chaos with children, which you know a good portion of you listeners know what I'm talking about here, I'm, I unfortunately a lot of my life is reactionary other than proactionary, and I do what I can. But something something like things is not necessarily for me in that regard. I just kind of need to know I need to get these things done today, as opposed to 
okay, well, I've got a doctor's appointment at 11 and I'm going to jet across town to see Stacy at two. And then I'm going to go see Bill at three or something like that. I just, I just can't do that. I manage my life out of fantastical, mm-hmm. which I love. And what I really wanted to do was to write my own sort of task manager kind of thing, task list app, where I was going to have it with with one big item, uh, say uh, an item that I can do within 120 minutes. Okay. And then three smaller items that are 30 minute each things or 15 minute each things. And then two items that are 30 minute things. Okay. Or 60 minute things. I'm, I'm okay with either one of those sort of variables for doubling or having the time. And, and the idea was that if I can accomplish one big, big thing, three really small things, and two kind of medium-sized things in a day, that, that I am doing really good. And that by by breaking it down that way, it makes things surmountable. Okay. I mean, I mean, yeah. And like with, you know, I say this a lot, obviously. We review a lot of software, review a lot of hardware. The key, and since you listen to the Apple Insider podcast, we assume that you trust our opinions on things. The key with any of these things, as far as hardware goes, as far as software goes and workflows, is you find somebody whose tone in evaluations and things like podcasts matches your own as far, not so much as belief systems, but as far as how they get things done. And if their opinions generally jive with yours, then their opinions you can rely on for being reasonably accurate with your own. And I think that's part of a bigger problem. I think it's easy enough to look at 10 different reviews of things and it's easy, like things, for instance, I I looked after we published our examination of it today and there's seven different examinations of the new things review and they all say something different. I'm not saying that they're all wrong, but they're just approaching the same thing from different angles. Well, absolutely. If you're getting things done devotee, right, and you have your inboxes and such laid out within things to be GTD compliant, then it's going to work fantastic for you. And you could do the same kind of thing with OmniFocus, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, I used to do that ages ago with Omni Outliner because Omni Outliner is what begat OmniFocus. (laughs) And so it's... it's, uh... The thing is that, yes, you're right, absolutely correct, that each person will approach this differently and that it's a matter of finding your way through these kinds of things, what works best for your actual needs, what works best for the kinds of tasks you're managing, the kinds of greater projects you're managing. What are you trying to to get out of it, right? You know, is there some joy in whittling away at these things and seeing them marked off as done? Is there some, what what, what is it that really is the benefit and the outcome? For me, what I always wanted was the the ability to, I, I liked using Siri, I like using voice prompts, I like being able to add tasks by voice and being able to say that they're complete or incomplete by voice or be able to check on them. And so you, there, there are all sorts of hacks to kind of do that where you create a reminders list and that reminders list is accessed by this other application. And But it's all sort of patchwork still. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, we're years away from Spike Jones's her. There, there's no way that happens for another 10 years. But I, I think that in a lot of ways, that's what a lot of people are waiting on and a lot of people are expecting. Yeah. Something to, to give you a little more predictive, oh, well, you've got this going on, but this might conflict with this, so I'm going to move this to here. Is that okay? And we're just not there yet. We get PR email all the time from people trying to do these things. Like, I, I have one here that arrived today that was about a virtual assistant that mm-hmm. can do these kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. It says, you know, you ask the virtual assistant, can you email this this person named Jason and find an upcoming showtime of Black Panther at the Metreon that we can see together for next weekend? And it will coordinate that with your friends to make it actually happen, they say. Mm. Or, 
you tell it, hey, I'm running half an hour late today. Can you adjust my afternoon appointments accordingly? And it will go ahead and run damage control and push and remove your schedule around with those people. Well, that would be great, but we're not there yet. And well, the, it's, they're advertising it in PR. It must be true, Mike. Hmm. Mustn't it? It must be true. Well, if, if that was true, then places like Apple Insider wouldn't need to exist anymore. P- PR people wouldn't lie to me, would they? Well, lie is a harsh term. No, they wouldn't lie to you. That's right. They wouldn't lie to you, but maybe not necessarily give you the whole story. You're, you're breaking my whole value system here. My and whole... the fourth wall. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about supply chain, because supply chain is always great at delivering fantastical rumors, right? And I have opinions. I know you're surprised. I'm I am stunned, shocked, and overwhelmed. <laughs> In fact, I'm even just whelmed. So ET News declared on Wednesday that according to industries, without saying what industries, Apple's examining possibilities for OLED technology to deal with the notch. And the idea is that they're going to drill holes into OLED panels or use a black matrix area within the display themselves so that you can have all of the sensors and cameras and microphone and all of the bits without having a notch. I uh, here's here's why I have feelings about this kind of thing. I don't think that there are industries in association with Apple that spilled the beans to ET News at all. I, I don't think that this is a closely guarded secret that Apple would like to hand you a pane of glass and say the iPhone 14 pane of glass and declare victory. You know, just maybe one port if we're lucky. Unapologetically glass. There, fine, whatever. <laughs> we, we can do the marketing for it later. So I don't think it's a big surprise that Apple is looking for a no-notch phone. I, I, I don't. But on the other hand, I also don't think that industries told ET News a single thing about it. I think that this is people talking and saying, "Well, Apple might do this," which then explodes into something stupid ten people down the road. Into, oh my God, the notch is going to be gone in 2019. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. I mean, that's very, very clearly Apple's goal, but there's nothing suggesting that that's the case right now. For me, I think Apple's goal is to push this existing technology that they've shown us in the iPhone X out to the other models, out to, to the other price points, right? They, they want to have the two OLED versions and the LCD version, right, in different screen sizes. They want more people to be able to use Face ID than people who have simply bought the most expensive phone on offer. Sure. And, and to that point, they're also potentially going to push Face ID out to the iPad Pro. I, I think that, actually, I, I don't think it's Face ID that's going to sell phones. I think it's Animoji that are going to sell phones. I, I think that we didn't get that push with the iPhone X because it's a $1,000 phone. But I guarantee you there are a horde of young customers that are looking at this Animoji right now and saying, man, I cannot wait until I get my hands on that. Apple has to make it easier to do things with Animoji instead of just the messages with the short amount of time. You know, Neil and I talked about this. There's an application on GitHub that allows you to use up to 60 seconds and use all the characters and do things like this to record videos so that you can make your Animoji music videos. You know, Apple has the advertisement they run on TV that has the Animoji uh, karaoke video. Mm-hmm. They need to provide a tool to allow people to make and share those. I have no doubt that extension of the technology is coming the same way that Apple Pay grew and access to near-field communications on the phone grew. While it's not as open as on Android, a lot there's a lot you can do with the NFC on it that you couldn't do before. It's just the natural Apple evolution of things. Here's this technology. And here's this technology slightly improved. And then two years later, here's this technology really radically improved. And this is really what we had in mind from the get-go. So, I mean, it's just how it always goes, how it always works. The right to repair bill in California. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So California is just the latest in a string of states that appear to be ready to introduce so-called right to repair legislation. Yep. And right to repair requires companies to provide consumers and third-party repair outlets with access to repair information, diagnostic equipment, and parts supply. Mm. Uh, this oh, I have hold complex on, hold thoughts on, hold on, on this, on. but go ahead. Hold on. So there are a number of good reasons why, in principle, the right to repair makes sense. And those reasons are things like uh, in the automotive space, for example, you can take your car to any competent mechanic and they will be able to get the service manual and be able to purchase parts that are either OEM parts or third-party parts that are made to the correct standard to be OEM replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to take it to the dealership or to a factory-owned mechanic. Right. The re- right to repair makes sense. And using those third-party parts or using a third-party mechanic to do it doesn't void your warranty by law. Right. So the right to repair in that space makes sense. And what we see in, in other spaces is that it makes sense there and we're butting up against it not being available. For instance, example, the, uh, the story that we saw a while back about John Deere tractors, where John Deere's tractors do not have that same kind of access, do not have that same kind of supply available. And so farmers who want to repair their tractors are beholden to John Deere coming out with their computer to talk to the computer in the tractor and solve the problem that way. And they can't go to an independent mechanic or repair it themselves the way you can with an automobile. And there are forums consisting of farmers who have figured out how to use hacked firmware to replace the the John Deere firmware to be able to repair their tractors without company support, without company service manuals, without any of the kinds of things that we find normal in the automotive space. So in principle, it makes sense that you ought to be able to service the thing that you own. If you can't, you haven't really bought it. You don't necessarily own it, do you? You are simply leasing it or, or renting it, that the company still owns it. And, and that's the contradiction here is, is when you buy something, do you own the thing or does the company own it? And when the company owns the software and can prohibit you from entering it or prohibits you from servicing it, like there are problems with people replacing screens and home buttons and all of a sudden their Touch ID doesn't work, right? Uh, th- these questions come up. These conflicts come up. What have you actually owned? Well, here a little bit of historical perspective here. Hmm. The first Apple dealership I worked at was in the mid-80s, and they were an Apple-authorized service center and dealer in East Longmeadow, Massachusetts. They were an AASP. Yeah. They were there's – there's an infamous rotary in East Longmeadow, Massachusetts. It used to be right there. And I've worked for several other places since then. I've worked for a couple of Apple specialists who, who did service and repair, uh, you know, authorized. I've worked for chains that have done it. I – I've, well, you know, frankly, I've done my own repairs by buying parts from eBay mm-hmm. for Macs. Yes. Okay. So in theory, I'm good with right to repair in theory where this falls down for me is Joe's screen repair shop where he's sourcing a part from China and then the phone doesn't work and he throws it back to the customer. And two weeks later, they go back to the Apple store saying, I got my screen fixed now my, and now my home button doesn't work. Well, what, what this is proposing is that. There, there, that example breaks down because it's a substandard part. It's not a part that is a, a part of the same or equal quality as the original. Had they used original quality parts, like you're buying off eBay when you're buying, I presume, used uh, secondhand, but you're yeah. buying an official part, mm-hmm. um, then, then you have a stronger reason for it to expect to be working, right? You know, if Joe's screen repair shop used official parts, then they would be able to do it. And the right to repair 
that's being proposed here is one that says that companies need to be able to make parts available. Yeah, so that I, Joe I can use the real part as opposed to a mm, Chinese part. Yeah, I, I, I've got a, I've got problems with that too, and it's just because of the nature of modern devices. Let me get to the to my part of the difficulty with this, which is what okay. you're talking about. Mm-hmm. This has an impact on the design and execution of devices, and a, a good example of that is a battery debacle, where the iPhone has never had a user replaceable battery in the way that a Samsung or another device has, where you can slide a plastic cover off and pop a battery out. Mm-hmm. Here, the battery is a fixed part of the the device and is only ever serviced by an authorized service technician, right? The original iPhone, the battery was actually soldered to the motherboard. On on every iPhone since then, it's used a flex cable where you can just remove it from the connector. But once you start saying that, that these things have to be made to be serviced by people who are currently not the authorized people or not trained or whatever, then you change the design. You know, if, if you said that the battery in an AirPods set had to be replaceable, you wouldn't be able to to produce the shrunken down, minimized size AirPod. Where's the battery door going to go? Where's the battery? Where's the connector? All that stuff has an impact. So do we want devices that are as slim and beautiful and lightweight as they are today? Or do we want devices that have that as a requirement and become bulkier as a result? This dovetails back into what I was talking about before about Apple appealing for the 90%. We're talking about this right to repair and look around you when you walk down the street, look at all these people with their iPhones. How many of those people do you think are willing to get a set of micro screwdrivers, which would be necessary anyway to take a battery out and do a battery replacement on their own? And how many of them would you trust to, to recycle the battery, how it should be done instead of chucking it in the trash or throwing it down the garbage disposal? Just make a count the next time you walk down the street. Back at my last venue, we did we did polling outside an Apple store. We waited for a thousand people to to go in and out of the Apple store. It didn't take that long. And the thousand people that answered our questions, two hundred of them were Mac users at all. And of those two hundred, two of them were comfortable opening a RAM door and an iMac to put in RAM. So two out of a thousand Apple customers have any inclination for their own simple, simple upgrade, much less repairing it themselves. So I I guess I don't understand why in this case, given the security issues at stake with the secure enclave and touch ID or face ID and the machinery that you need to synchronize the secure enclave with new parts, I'm not sure why we think that those two people should. Or the or the screen calibration rig that you right. need to use to, right. to color calibrate an iPhone screen once you've replaced it. All, all the things that are a part of this, right? And you know, I say this as a guy who likes going elbows deep into his Mac Pro. I have I have serviced iPhones. Uh, my my iPhone 3G was one that I got because someone else had disassembled it for research purposes and handed me a bag full of parts, oh. <laughs> and I assembled it back into a working phone. What a pain! No, it was actually pretty easy. Anyway, so what I I don't think it would hurt Apple to widen their authorized service provider program. I think that there are a lot of unserved markets that you have to trek two hours to an Apple store. I don't have to. I've got my choice of Apple stores all within 10 miles or an hour drive. So, and if I was really pushed, I could go to Richmond or I could go to Baltimore, but not everybody is in an area like this. you know, going out to, going out just to the Southwest in Virginia, going, driving four hours to Southwest. And now magically you're three hours away from the closest Apple store. That's not exactly a quick jaunt over to get something fixed. 
No, it's not. But I'm, I do not think that Apple should just say, okay, sure, here are the specs go nuts. I think yeah, that's well, a really bad idea. What I, years and years ago, there were the service source documents for how to repair mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that those documents still existed and were updated and available. I wish that you could purchase parts that, you know, the, the classic thing is the service provider is the only person authorized to purchase parts and they have to return the dead part back as, as a part of their, their the core arrangement. The core exchange, yeah. Yeah, the core exchange. And, you know, for, for a person who's got a five-year out-of-warranty MacBook Pro but wants it running again, our only alternative at this moment is to eBay. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here working on old iPods, as we've been talking about in the past. And if, if I need a part, I have to, to hunt for the part to, to get it. And I replaced a headphone jack within the back case of an iPod. And it cost as much as buying another iPod, actually, at this point. Back in, geez, I want to say it was 2005, I bought a pile of broken iPods for a song. I think it was 400 bucks for 17 broken iPods. I'm rubbing my hands together here. It was it was a long time ago. And I I got 10 of them fully functional, two of them partially functional, and had parts left over like gaskets and things for years. And I'm, I'm glad those opportunities exist, but it, it doesn't mean that I want I want anonymous Chinese manufacturer number four to make a touch ID sensor or have any idea how it's put together. True. There is this. So this is the conflict. And, and it's one of those things where we're, we, we are conflicted about it because we are those wires and pliers nerds. But at the same time, it, it has a negative impact on the product that we get, both in terms of those, those third-party parts suppliers with substandard parts, as well as what it does to the design, what it does to change what Apple's required to do. Or anyone else, for that matter. It's it's. I don't think this debate is going to end. The legislation can go. It's. I don't think it's going to get passed. I. I and the reason why I don't think it's going to get passed is I think is because it paints a too wide brush. I think the John Deere tractor thing is ridiculous, but I, I don't think this is just for Apple. I don't want anyone to have a Samsung part for their security. I don't want anyone to have Huawei parts. I don't want to have any that are crucial to security. I. This is not just. This is not just me saying that only Apple and Apple only. We've secretly replaced the secure element in Mike Worthley's phone with one provided by Huawei. Yeah, made out of paper clips and <laughs> band-aids. I, I mean, I, I don't no, no, know. No, they make I a mean, lovely phone. Let's be they fair. Do. They make a lovely phone. They make fantastic networking equipment. There are a number of people who have concerns about them in terms of security, but and that has quashed their deal with AT&T, holding them as a supplier for phones to that carrier. Mm-hmm. But I, I have two of their handsets here, and I, I have to say they're well-made. They're fine. So it's – in terms of that product, it's easy to pick on and say that, especially with all of the, the talk about them being a security problem. I, I think some of that is a little bit unfair. But back to the original point, I, I don't want that cheap part, like I said, made out of made out you of dental floss part. and a Band-Aid. You want the official I, I, part. I want the Apple manufactured part for Touch ID or Face ID or anything like that. It, it's that's. I don't see how it could be any other way, given how much of our lives and our finances are on these devices at any given time. Here we are for a very special sex- segment of the Apple Insider podcast, and we have Adam Justice joining us of ConnectSense. Adam, welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I've been in the industry working around network products for about nine years now and um 
took some of my core, you know, networking experience and helped found the Connexent brand uh, back in 2013. And and what were the first products like? Yeah, I mean, Connexent came to be uh, as yeah, as I said, kind of an offshoot brand of our, our parent company, Grid Connect, in 2013. Um, we launched some Wi-Fi-based sensors. Um, basically, we had some experience in the networking world and saw an opportunity to improve um, some sensor solutions in the market and kind of saw all these technologies coming together, um, price of networking you know, coming down, um, the cloud, all those kinds of things. So we built full hardware, software, and a cloud platform to implement that. And, you know, as we got that product uh, towards launch, we realized that as we made this sensor solution a lot simpler, it, it started to make sense for consumers in their home as well. It really started out as more of a business product. Um, but as we kind of added the full feature set to it, it, it was easy enough and had broad enough application that it started to make sense for consumers as well, which is kind of what got us into more of the the consumer side of the space as well under the the ConnectSense brand. Certainly, the the ConnectSense product that I'm familiar with is a HomeKit enabled device. It's a uh, dual AC outlet wall outlet device. Yeah, so um, you know we we got involved with HomeKit um, around. 2014. Um, so HomeKit was announced at, at WWDC in 2014. And this happened to come right at the same time as, um, you know, that was about nine months after we had launched the original um, ConnectSense sensors. So we we're kind of thinking, all right, what what's next for us? And, uh, you know, I'm a passionate Apple fan like yourself and uh, was really excited about this announcement of HomeKit. And it seemed like a great ecosystem to get involved with and, and you know get uh, get into early on. So we looked at a number of different ideas and um, settled on trying to build a sm- better smart outlet. Um, to give you some context of the era, you know really the only game in, in the market at that time was Wemo and uh, Wemo has gotten a lot better uh, today than it was then. It really wasn't a very good or reliable product at the time. so, we felt there was a really good opportunity. Um, so we did some different things. You know, we, we designed uh, and still have one of the only um, dual outlet um, Wi-Fi enabled smart outlets in the market. And uh, yeah, and then first showed that product to the world in, at CES 2015. And it launched uh, in November of 2015 after that. Can I ask you to tell me a little bit about What's changed for you in HomeKit from the time that you started working on it when it was announced until now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've just seen HomeKit get more mature, and uh, obviously the ecosystems got a lot broader. Um, I think you know one of the great things is just to get more products into the market, and you know uh, that you know continually to make the offering um, better and better for consumers. I think. You know, I always say when it comes to any of these smart home ecosystems, um, more than one product gets an experience that's greater than than just, you know, those two things. So, you know, one plus one does not equal two. So I think as as you start to get uh, in your home, um, multiple products, get those working together in scenes and things like that, 
it really becomes a much richer experience. So um, definitely more devices. That's one piece of it. Um, the other big, big change monumentally was the introduction of the home app. Um, you know, prior to that, all of us uh, manufacturers were kind of left to build out a HomeKit experience on our own. Um, you know, we were one of the few that had a full integrator app, um, not unlike the home app to be able to control and manage all types of HomeKit devices. And that was right, a lot. So you were aggregating everyone else's devices as well. Is that right? Yeah, we were. And uh, that's a lot for a manufacturer to take on and to do well and to, you know, continually update and things like that. And I, I think there were a few people that did that well, um, but it really wasn't sustainable, nor was it the best uh, experience for um, really for the the end user. So, um, you know, Apple came in and uh, introduced the home app in, in iOS 10. And, you know, I think that was a really strong endorsement not only for the ecosystem as a whole, you know, to me that said um, that this was something that was serious to Apple and they were going to continue to make investments in. Um, but I think it was just generally a, a better user experience as well. It allowed manufacturers like us to focus on our core product and our core product experience. Um, I still think there's a ton of place for manufacturers to do some really unique and interesting things in their own app and really provide a, a core experience to their product in their own, ma own app and then utilize that home app experience to um, integrate with the broader ecosystem. So I think that's probably the single biggest change um, that we've seen in since HomeKit was originally introduced. Yeah, one of the things that we watch for are devices that are, are able to become HomeKit that, that might not have otherwise shipped as HomeKit devices because of, of the ability to use sort of software authentication. Um, that was one of the announcements that we saw come out of WWC 2017. And, you know, we, we looked at that as encouraging because it means that maybe there'll be a, a larger number of manufacturers that, that work to add HomeKit compatibility. Yeah. I mean, certainly in the beginning, it was pretty widely known that, um, you know, you basically had to redesign a, a device from scratch um, to in incorporate that, that MMFI authentication chip. So yeah, definitely, um, was very happy to see that announcement at WWDC last year and, you know, continue to keep an eye on, um, on that. And, you know, hopefully it does, um, add the ability for, you know, either devices that are already in the field or, um, make it simpler for devices to integrate in, in, uh, in the future. And I think, you know, that's a good thing and, and definitely something we were excited to see. Can I ask you uh, to give me your thoughts on, on why a consumer should choose HomeKit instead of devices that are focused around Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant? Yeah, I mean, I think all these platforms have um, their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think where HomeKit is really strong is around... Um, the fact that it's, and maybe this is something not everybody knows, but HomeKit is a local protocol um, and all those devices communicate on the local network as opposed to Alexa or Google Assistant where every single command is going to the cloud. And in the case of multiple devices, it's going to, it's going to Apple or Amazon's cloud uh, to do the Alexa commands, and then it's going out to individual manufacturers' clouds from there. 
Um, so, you know, that can introduce latency, it can, can introduce issues and things like that, um, and complexity. And so I think some of the core features in HomeKit around automations, scheduling, and things like that are, and triggers, um, are just things that really uh, are possible and work really well based on the fact that that HomeKit is a local ecosystem and obviously, you know, enabled for remote access via devices like the Apple TV, the HomePod and things like that. So, I mean, in my own home, I think my focus on devices has been those that also support multiple ecosystems. I think, you know, there are places where things work well in one ecosystem over another and, you know, being and in the smart home space and working in this space, I just want to experience all of them and, and really uh, immerse myself in it. So, you know, I try to look for devices that support um, either, you know, Amazon and HomeKit are kind of my top two. And then, you know, if they support all three, even better. Um, I have devices for all three ecosystems that I test with. Now, you mentioned HomePod. Can, can I ask you what you think of HomePod? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I got a HomePod at launch and I've been using it ever since. Um, you know, I think it's a great piece of hardware and, uh, and definitely a great start. Um, certainly the music experience is strong. Um, I really love the, the microphone in it. It's hard to, it's hard to compare microphones between, um, devices, but, uh, ev- my experience so far is it's really good at picking up commands and um, hearing you even with loud music on and things like that. So I think from a hardware perspective, um, really solid device and, um, you know, happy with that. I think from a software perspective, I think there's some work still to be done. And, you know, for a device that's 1.0, that's not totally unexpected either. Um, We've seen this, you know, with the iPhone, with, with every, you know, Apple device that they put the the base out there and then they build upon it. So I hope they do the same with the HomePod and continue to add features. I think from a HomeKit perspective, um, it's great to have a another microphone uh, that picks up commands really well. And it certainly has led to me using um, commands, you know, for HomeKit through the HomePod um, more often. Um, but it also has some limitations, um, things like the fact that you can't uh, command uh, locks and garage doors and things like that. And the way that it does um, kind of device negotiation of who's going to grab that command uh, if you use uh, Hey Siri, um, and multiple devices will try to grab that and the HomePod usually wins. And the HomePod wins, even if it's not the best device to take that command. So if you wanted to open the garage or um, open the front door or something like that. Um, So I think there's some work still to be done there. And, um, you know, I think the fact that the HomePod lives in the Home app is certainly promising. I'd love to see deeper integration into HomeKit. Um, Think of things like... uh, the ability to put the HomePod in, in the middle of a scene. So you say, 
uh, I'm home and your lights turn on and your favorite Apple Music radio station comes on with it. Or I'm leaving, uh, the music turns off, the lights turn off, the garage opens, something like that. So I think there's a ton of opportunity here and I hope come WWDC uh, 2018 we see proof of that, that Apple's going to continue to make investment in this device. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. The experience for our listeners who, who don't have a HomePod yet is if you have the door lock or the garage door and you, you announce that you'd like to lock the door, the HomePod doesn't have any way of authenticating. It doesn't have a face ID uh, camera or it doesn't have a touch ID sensor. So it passes that back to a device that does. And, um, you know, it's it's like you say, it's it's not always the most efficient use when it could have gone to the device that already has that sensor in the first place. One yeah, and I mean, that, I, oh, I think ahead, uh, I think also, you know, I would just like to see some parity with some of the other things going on in in the other ecosystem. So, you know, the you know silly things like multiple timers, um, you know, that Amazon and, and Google does really well. Um, to, you know, more advanced stuff. So one of my favorite features on the Echo now is they do this thing called groupings where you could put, um, I think the one I use the most is it lights in a group with a Echo device. And then instead of having to do incredibly complex, um, incredibly complex commands for that device, you can give really basic commands like turn off the lights and that that will only listen to the devices that are specifically in that group. Well, now that I know about that feature, I want everything to work this way. So if I say turn off the lights to the HomePod, it should just turn off the lights in the kitchen where that device is uh, is located. So, um, you know, I think there's a bunch of things in those other ecosystems that I'd like to see Apple play, play catch up on. Absolutely. This is this has been really informative. What what are some of the things I th- you mentioned groupings? What would be your number one on a wish list? What would you like these things to do most that they don't do today? Um, I would say top voice uh, would be voice recognition. I think if the HomePod could do voice recognition and um, tell users apart, it would greatly expand the capabilities of the device just because the whole Apple ecosystem is so user-based um, and so personal that I think that would just kind of break open all the capabilities for this device. Yeah. You know, we, we've always talked off and on over the years about the idea of multiple user accounts on things like an iPad, where you could have an iPad that was shared between children or things like that. Um, the Macs always had multiple user accounts. It, it seems to me that the HomePod is the first device that really sort of requires it. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there's certainly an argument for some of those other devices too. And maybe it's a something they have to solve across the entire family of devices. But yeah, I think the, the smart speakers are by nature a communal device. And it, it's something that um, everybody really needs to make better. But um, I would love to see Apple really nail that. Very cool. So th- this one's sort of off the beaten path, and it's okay if, if we don't have a good answer to it. How do you compare the the HomePod? I know the, a lot of people have been telling me that HomePod is primarily a music speaker, and it's not fair to judge it against other smart speakers because they're not meant to do the same thing. They're not focused on the same use. H- how do you think of this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you enter the smart speaker market, you're going to get compared to other smart speakers and all the things those devices can do. I mean, I think the reality is just that, you know, Apple entered a market that Amazon's been in f- two for three and a half years and been iterating. Google's been in for a year and a half and been iterating. And so, you know, they got to they gotta get parity fast and that, that kind of stuff takes time and, you know, it always will, uh, you know, make adaptations and software improvements. And so I think it's something that's not out of the realm of possibility that they can get there. Um, and, you know, that's how you got to do it. You got to ship hardware and, and then iterate on it. So that's the beautiful thing about, you know, the world we live in is that hardware gets better over time and software updates are a beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, in my mind, I, I was always comparing it against those other devices. But from a sound perspective, I think they're, um, you know, definitely one of the best in the, in the market. And uh, so it, I think they knew that was going to be their strength. And so they leaned in on it in, in their marketing. And uh, yeah, I, I use it way more than I ever used any of those other devices for music just because uh, it sounds that much better. And, uh, you know, I'm an old school Apple music guy. I came over from, from Beats uh, where I was a member of that long before Apple acquired them. So um, being that, my, that, that being my music service of choice, um, you know, I, I couldn't use that on some of the other platforms. So happy to be able to shout into the world and hear whatever song I have on my mind. Nice. What should we look for next from ConnectSense? Uh, what, what is the most recently announced product that you'd like to draw our attention to? Sure. Um, so I would say the most imminent thing um, would be a next version of our smart outlet. Um, we uh, were lucky enough to have some really great press coverage uh, late last year around the holidays. David Pogue put us as a, a top pick on his holiday list, and uh, we sold out of all of the original design of the Smart Outlet. So we've got uh, Smart Outlet 2 that um, will be you know, largely the same in the design, but from a software capabilities is going to be um, vastly superior. So it adds um, compatibility for not only... Um, the Amazon ecosystem, but also for Google Home and uh, should have some other cool features as well. And then um, following behind later this year, um, we've got some sensors we've announced previously, uh, temperature, humidity and water. And uh, at CES this year, we also showed off for the first time a in-wall version of our outlet. So um, that'll probably be later this year. But um all things we're excited to to get out in the world and follow up with that original uh, HomeKit device. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. And uh, our listeners should go to connectsense.com and check it out. And, and gosh, this has been wonderful. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, Mike, I have run out of time. I want to thank okay. all of our listeners for listening. If you have old iPods and you can load the podcast on there and take a picture of an iPod running our podcast. We'd love to see it. We love hearing from you. If you have questions, if you want to talk about HomeKit, if you want to talk more about HomePod, we're happy to entertain those. And thank you so much for joining us. We hope you're back next week. For that matter, break out your old blue and white G3 or your or your original iMac or what With have the you. the blue Heck, and white G3 on- CRT tube.
for that matter, if you can get it on like a Performa 475, you knock yourself out. But uh, yeah, we'd love to see the pictures of it. We will be back next week. I'll probably be back with you next week, Victor. And if you're interested in hearing kind of a saltier podcast, you can find me at spacejavelin.com every Monday morning. Yep. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you very much. We'll be back. So long, everybody. <laughs>